This is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. Apologies for the background noise this week. I am recording a podcast from the Climate Summit in Madrid. And it is almost impossible to find anywhere quiet. Um, But uh, I'm going to follow up from last week, this week. We're going to be doing part two on evidencing impact. And uh, if I get time when I get back to my hotel tonight, I'll try and record um, some concise thoughts on uh, on what you can learn from an event like this in terms of working with policymakers. Uh, Of course, uh, at an event like this, uh, this is a pathway to impact and there's very little in the way of actual impact from just talking to a bunch of people. I need to know that those people, A, understood something and B, maybe did something with what I've got to say to them. But I will be trying to do a few testimonial interviews uh, while I'm here to to collect some further evidence of uh, the impacts that have uh, happened to date. So uh, we're going to dive straight in with the the second part. Uh, As I said last week, this is a bit of a a brave new experiment for me. This whole preprint type idea is is frankly kind of terrifying me. (laughs) But uh, why not uh, try and uh, do this in uh, audio uh, vibe? Uh, So yeah, I listen to audiobooks all the time. I would love it if I could read all of the papers I had to read on audio. And uh, I'm giving you that opportunity now. Uh, so it's, it's fairly dry, it's, it's a paper, it's an academic paper. I try to write as uh, accessibly as possible, but uh, when I'm reading this kind of stuff, I do really notice, yeah, this is an academic paper, so bear with it. Uh, I'll try and read this uh, as, as slowly and as engagingly as possible so that, uh, that you get the, the key points. Uh, I have now actually submitted the paper, so last week uh, I was uh, still proofing it as I was reading, so hopefully it will be less annoying this week in terms of stopping and starting to uh, correct issues with uh, with the paper. So last week, just to catch you up, if you didn't listen to it, uh, I was giving you some new definitions, a definition of research impact. Uh, so this is a, a new academic definition of impact, uh, and a definition of impact evaluation, a new approach to defining the reach of your impact. Um, and we had a, a bit of a, a, a deeper think about uh, how we might evidence causation, in particular, cause and effect, where the cause is your research and the, the, the effect is your, your impact. So uh, as I gave you at the end of last week, uh, there is a typology that, uh, that my colleagues and I have come up with. So uh, five different types of research impact evaluation design that you can choose from. And in the main part of this week's episode, I'm going to go through each of those five types. And I want you to have a listen and have a think about how you might use one of these types to evaluate your impact. And uh, think out of the box if you can. Think beyond the methods I'm talking about here and ask yourself whether there are methods that you use on a regular basis that you might be able to uh, adapt uh, within this particular family or or type of of methods that I'm describing. So uh, there are two things. I'm going to go through the table. Um, If you've got the Research Impact Handbook, you'll see a a prototypic version of this table. I'll I'll run through elements of that table and I'll read through each of the segments. And then I'll conclude with the methodological framework that we're proposing to help you choose which of these different types of evaluation design is most relevant for you. uh, And then within that, the the relevant methods that you might want to, to deploy. 
So let's start with quantitative, experimental, and I can't say that word, statistical um, uh, impact evaluations. So loads of different types of methods within this, and I'm sure you'll be able to think of many more from uh, lots of different types of statistical modeling, uh, econometrics, payback framework, uh, and various forms of experimental methods that you might use. Um, uh, I'll read through the section and we'll talk about the, the ways in which this is used and how it established, uh, establishes causation. But um, two other things just to quickly give you a sense of is the type of evidence you get from uh, this sort of method. Uh, so some examples here, improvements in water quality based on improved regulation arising from research or reduced morbidity or mortality among patients receiving a new treatment based on research compared to a control group. Uh, and this is something that is uh, a set of methods that is typically used for impacts that are kind of end of pipe, longer term things, so economic, environmental, social, health and well-being type impacts, maybe policy, uh, some other forms of behaviour change, decision making type things. Great. Uh, typically not used uh, more kind of formative mode for shorter term interim impacts, such as uh, changes in understanding or, or attitudes and the like. So let's have a read through the, the first of these sections. Quantitative, experimental and statistical approaches to impact evaluation typically provide evidence of research as a necessary cause of impact. This is often done by inferring counterfactual causation based on the difference between the two otherwise identical cases one that is manipulated and the other that is controlled, giving rise to evidence of cause and effect. Traditionally, quantitative, experimental and statistical approaches have dominated impact evaluation and in many fields, for example in medical trials and many international development programmes, they're still considered the gold standard. This type of evaluation typically compares treatment and control groups using statistics to analyse results. Where there are large populations of observed data, statistical methods can help identify biases and provide quantitative assessment of the likelihood that impacts occurred and are statistically related to a research intervention. Attribution between the intervention and outcomes often rely on pre-post assessments, i.e. comparison of outcomes before versus after intervention implementation. New methods have emerged to cope with time-dependent trends and outcomes that are unrelated to interventions. For example, the difference-in-difference method uses a comparison group experiencing the same trends that is not exposed to the intervention. Quantitative, experimental and statistical approaches may be essential for high-risk and or controversial studies. However, they're often costly and time-consuming to implement. As a result, less costly and time-consuming methods have been developed to evaluate impact. For example, using quasi-experimental designs in which space, a comparable situation or territory without the intervention, is substituted for time. Examples include the comparison case approach or matching design, for example, using propensity score matching. Yet, it is often difficult to find a comparable case that represents the alternative state. There are three other weaknesses associated with quantitative, experimental and statistical impact evaluation as well. 
first, the potential to replicate and synthesize studies to provide reliable evidence of what works at national or system levels to inform wider policy and practice is compromised by a lack of common standards for collecting and reporting data. Second, quantitative metric-based approaches to impact assessment have been criticised as oversimplifying and so providing partial and or misleading findings. For example, Australia's Engagement and Impact Framework from 2017 allows higher education institutes to use up to eight quantitative indicators to assess engagement with non-academics. And two out of the four mandatory indicators are, I quote, cash support from research end users, and research commercialization income. Economic indicators such as these are a crude proxy for engagement, may or may not be correlated to impacts and favor certain disciplines over others, for example, engineering over many other sciences and design over many other arts and humanities disciplines. And third, quantitative approaches can be used to establish correlations that may be mistaken for cause and effect without the use of additional methods to infer causality. Moving on to the second of the five different types of impact evaluation design, we've got theory of change or logic-driven approaches. Uh, just having a quick look at the table, uh, the kind of methods we're looking at here are theory of change, assay method. If you want to find out more about this, go to fasttrackimpact.com forward slash TOC for theory of change. And you can see how to develop a theory of change uh, for a research project that goes all the way from research to impact. But we've also got this broad family of methods known as logic models, the most common of which is a logical frame framework analysis. Uh, so the, the kind of examples that I'm going to give you here uh, are all about changes in pre-established indicators that you set at the start of your project as part of your logic model or your theory of change that you would expect to show change as impacts occur. So two contrasting examples and listen to each of these indicators and see how they string together in causal chains. So number of farm advisors adapting their discourse to farmers number of farmers taking up the conservation measure, hectares of land restored, followed by reduction in water pollution, savings to water companies and reductions in water bills. And a contrasting example, access to healthcare, number of individuals getting immunized against a particular disease, number of individuals not contracting the disease, followed by reduction in the predominance of the disease and savings in health expenditures. And this works for all types of, uh, of impact. Theory and logic-driven approaches to impact evaluation trace causal chains from research to impact based on an anticipated logic or a theory of likely change. They may be used to provide evidence that research was either sufficient or necessary to generate impact, but the explicit consideration of risks and assumptions in both approaches make them well suited to evaluating whether the research was a sufficient cause of impact in the context of other contributory or confounding factors. Although they tend to be used ex ante to plan for impacts, they can also be used in evaluation to compare actual impacts to those that were planned. The more closely reality corresponds to what was expected in theory at the outset, the stronger the case for assuming that the research contributed to the outcomes.
A logic model, also called logical framework or theory of change, is typically developed at the start of a research project, working back from the ultimate benefits, in the case of a theory of change, or working forwards from impact goals, in the case of a logic model. <clears throat> it consists of mapping out the steps that would in theory be necessary to move from the planned research activities to the generation of research outputs, intermediate outcomes, short-term impacts, and the ultimate benefits that are sought. If the links in the causal chain, also referred to as program theory, accurately enable the design of pathways to impacts and reflect the impact delivery process, then it's possible to design an evaluation to look for each of the causal links and measure indicators to infer whether or not the research is making progress towards impact. For example, an evaluation might assess whether or not capacity is being built and awareness raised by the end of the first year of a project, as envisaged in its theory of change, by stress testing procedures or services or, uh, or, or surveying staff. Alternatively, national statistics may be used to monitor indicators of malnutrition or morbidity in a project designed to enhance the health of a population. Developing a logic model includes an identification of the different beneficiaries or users of the research outputs, assessments of risk, for example internal and external factors that might influence the delivery of each outcome along the causal chain, and identification of assumptions behind the causal links that have been inferred. The causal chain in a theory of change is usually expressed visually using diagrams, whereas logic models tend to be presented as tables and both may be turned into narrative. Theories of change tend to focus more on the multiple, potentially alternative links that can be made in the causal chain from research to impact, whereas logic models tend to focus more on activity and impact indicators and their means of verification. Both theories of change and logic models typically involve the identification of activity and impact indicators and criteria. Reed et al. 2006 provided a list of attributes for designing indicators for use by researchers and or stakeholders that combined accuracy and ease of use. Others have adapted smart indicators from the management world to suggest that in impact indicators should be specific, that is, capture the essence of the desired result and be able to pick up changes over time. Measurable, in either quantitative or qualitative terms. Achievable. Uh, is feasible in terms of equipment, funding, competences and time. Relevant, capturing what is to be measured accurately and consistently, and timely, to provide information in a timely manner. The design of impact indicators follows two broad methodological paradigms. First, an expert-led and top-down approach, where indicators are collected rigorously, scrutinised and accessed, often using statistical tools. Uh, this top-down approach enables evaluators to present trends and make comparisons, but evaluations usually fail to engage local communities. And secondly, a community-based and bottom-up paradigm that's rooted in an understanding of local context and local perceptions of the environment and society, but that might be difficult to compare to other contexts. Alternatively, criterion-based approaches evaluate impact against pre-established theory-driven criteria designed to predict or explain why impacts arise. For example, Mitchell, 
2019 developed a survey approach in which data from publics and stakeholders is collected to measure outcomes in different categories, rating their usefulness. Based on a Likert scale of answers to questions about instrumental, conceptual or symbolic use, to create a numeric impact index against which different case studies can be compared. A number of others have proposed the usability of research as a key impact, uh, as a key evaluation criterion, categorizing research according to the ways in which it can be used, for example, conceptual use, instrumental use, and capacity building. Alternatively, based on criteria arising from participatory research with researchers, Martin San Alt et al. 2016 uh, proposed that impact should be evaluated in relation to the credibility of the underpinning research, its contribution to society, the extent to which the research can be effectively communicated, and the extent to which it conforms to established ethical and research quality standards. So let's move to the third out of the five types of impact evaluation. And we've got systems and pathway analysis. So let's have a wee look at the table. Um, lots of different methods here, contribution analysis, knowledge mapping, social network analysis, Bayesian networks, agent-based models, dynamic system models, the list goes on. Um, this is a set of methods that are particularly uh, well suited for evaluating policy impacts, other forms of decision making and behaviour change and capacity building, uh, less commonly used uh, for end of pipe stuff, although that is possible. And some examples of the kinds of evidence you might derive from this could be that you now have evidence of a significant contribution made by research to the solution of a previously intractable problem. Increase in strengthening of the number of nodes or connections in a social network following a participatory process, or understanding of how a group of actors relate to each other and act. Evaluation designs based on systems and pathway analysis are similar to logic and theory-driven approaches. However, they're typically used ex post to explore whether research was sufficient to cause impact by disentangling the messy complexity of impacts that occur in complex systems compared to logic and theory-driven approaches that are more often used in impact planning. They tend to draw on a range of qualitative and quantitative research methods to depict more complex cause and effect relationships. They're able to, cap to capture the complex range of other factors mediating impacts to enable the generation of arguments that the research made a significant contribution to the impact, even if direct and sole attribution is not possible. For example, Reed et al. 2018 used a combination of social network analysis and qualitative interviews to map knowledge flows through science policy networks to attribute policy impacts to specific research outputs. Research findings were traced as they were communicated between members of the network, identifying which findings got into policy and practice or not, and how the research findings had been transformed as they were translated for different audiences. Working with another part of the same network, Chapman et al. 2009 used agent-based modelling to understand how target stakeholders were likely to respond to different policy scenarios to evaluate the social processes through which impacts typically occurred in the study system and to guide ongoing impact generation activities, the outcomes of which were reported by Reed et al. 2018. 
Wilcott et al. 2019 built on quantitative measures of social networks to build a methodological framework based on human cultural accumulation theory. And they used uh, interviews, questionnaires and focus groups to assess how interpersonal as well as person-environment interactions contributed to the accumulation of memory within individuals and groups, leading to cultural change. As such, in complex systems, they argued that research impact should be seen as arising from the, and I quote, cultural effects of societal interaction, rather than from individual researchers and research outputs, focusing on, I quote again, research impact as our, rather than my, impact. While contribution analysis takes a logic model approach, it focuses on tracing pathways to impact as a way of assessing the relative contribution of the research to the impact, and is therefore relevant in this section. It involves mapping a pathway to impact and identifying assumptions and risks for each stage of the pathway. Impact indicators are identified to collect evidence for each element of the pathway and thus write a contribution story that considers various alternative explanations. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, just to warn you. Uh, the social impact assessment methods for research and funding instruments through the study of productive interactions project. <gasps> Breathe. SIAMPI, uh, for short, <laughs> developed an approach to contribution analysis that acknowledged the complexity of attribution between research activities and observed impacts. It focused on specifically reflecting the productive interactions, as they called them, between actors, such as the researcher-stakeholder interaction, where knowledge is produced and valued that is both scientifically robust and socially relevant. The driver pressure state impact response framework identifies and monitors indicators within each of those five categories, driver pressure state impact response, that are causally linked. In this framework, impacts are generally negative outcomes, and so in impact evaluation, the focus is on the effectiveness of the response to the negative impact. More broadly, systems models can provide detailed understanding of causal links from research to impact and are particularly useful for understanding complex, non-linear and unpredictable outcomes. As a family of methods, systems models range from highly quantitative process-based models to qualitative conceptual models referred to variously as mediated modeling, conceptual modeling and participatory systems modeling. At the quantitative end of this spectrum are process-based modeling methods, which can be used to estimate impacts arising from evidence-based interventions in policy and practice. For example, Ewan et al. 2000 developed a spatially distributed process-based model of the full water cycle for integrated land and water management, integrating new techniques for modeling flow and transport of sediments and contaminants to support decision-making at the catchment scale and inform policy related to the environmental impacts of land erosion, pollution, climate change and land use change within river basins. At the qualitative end of the spectrum, Kenter et al. 2014 used conceptual models to trace the shared social and cultural impact of new policies based on research, considering environmental, economic and social effects, alongside deeper effects on transcendental values and beliefs of affected populations. Sitting in the middle of the spectrum are dynamic systems models, fuzzy cognitive mapping, 
and Bayesian approaches, which can integrate both qualitative information, for example, a relationship between two variables of unknown direction and strength, and quantitative information, for example, a, reg a regression equation. Although more technically challenging, Bayesian methods are particularly useful for quantifying the uncertainty arising from missing information and are able to integrate multiple complex sub-models in addition to qualitative information. By modelling beliefs elicited from relevant experts about likely causal chains between research and impact, Bayesian methods can be used to improve the clarity and precision of likely impacts as part of an a priori effectiveness analysis and, when integrated with monitoring data, assess the relative contribution made by research to impacts. Some evaluations, however, are based purely on qualitative data, as the next section shows. <clears throat> so the next section is qualitative and arts-based approaches. So loads of different methods here. We flavor, we've got testimonials, ethnography, participant observation, interviews, focus groups, textual analysis. Uh, Skipping through here, oral history, storytelling, digital cultural mapping, media analysis, stroke social media analysis, uh, and wait for it, poetry, fiction, music, dance, and theatre. And I will explain all in a moment. Uh, this works across all types of impact, um, and some examples of the kind of evidence you might get. Testimonials or statements from end users, for example, policymakers who are now applying a modelling tool, perhaps. Uh, or changes of perception, awareness, or attitudes of a social group as a result of engaging with research, or changes in culture, cultural discourse, or appreciation, and benefit from cultural artefacts and experiences. Qualitative and arts-based evaluation methods tend to build a case that research was sufficient to cause impact by triangulating multiple sources of evidence to create a credible evidence-based argument that attributes impacts to research. Both qualitative and arts-based methods can be participatory, engaging beneficiaries and other stakeholders in the evaluation itself, enabling these groups to engage and shape the evaluation, which then has potential to further enhance impact. Qualitative methods have a number of key advantages for reflecting impact. Referring to arts and culture case studies in REF 2014, Hugh Letatel, 2017, commented that, and I quote, while reach of impact was largely presented as a quantitative measure, a qualitative layer of information about the type of engagement is described, it described also appeared vital. Little distinction can be made between direct and indirect beneficiaries when considering reach in purely statist statistical terms. In research settings, there are multiple lines of evidence and lines of argument and other factors contributing towards impact, and it can be difficult to isolate and collect data on all factors, risks and assumptions. However, qualitative data, for example, from interviews or testimonials and focus groups, can help explain and contextualise a project's results and create a rounded picture of the likely impacts, considering economic, political, institutional, and socio-cultural factors. In fact, compared with quantitative methods, qualitative methods leads in some cases to a greater depth of understanding of how and why a research project was or was not effective and how it might be adapted in future to make it more effective. 
Qualitative work, when combined with quantitative work as part of a case study, can further more help in the interpretation of quantitative data and relationships, especially in terms of inferring cause and effect. Using a mix of quantitative and qualitative methods in the impact evaluation process can enhance the validity and credibility of evaluation findings, facilitate the development of a method, extend comprehensiveness of evaluation findings, and generate new insights into evaluation findings. Having said this, criticisms faced by qualitative evaluations include the difficulty of generalising from case-specific findings, the risk of excessive reliance on the opinions and perspective of the evaluator or those providing testimonials, perceived bias arising from small sample sizes where there is insufficient triangulation, and the inability to re replicate or validate findings in quantitative terms and the difficulty of obtaining standardised data allowing us to measure change over time or between the groups. Qualitative comparative analysis attempts to overcome some of these limitations by mixing qualitative and quantitative methods in a case-based approach. It's particularly useful for disentangling complex relationships where there are multiple causal factors at play. Positive and negative cases of impact to be evaluated, for example, behaviour change versus offence caused by a public engagement event, are identified and analysed with stakeholders. The group defines a range of likely causal factors, for example, the research versus a range of other contextual factors, which are analysed using Boolean algebra to assess the combination of causal factors most likely to lead to cases of negative or positive impacts. Arts-based approaches may be used to evaluate impacts arising from any discipline and should not be seen as only relevant for the evaluation of impacts arising from research in the arts and humanities. Although they derive strongly from an arts and humanities context, we found approaches for cre using creative arts reported across a very wide range of disciplines within social sciences, healthcare, anthropology, biodiversity and environment settings. The use of arts-based approaches in particular has, I quote, grown from the desire of researchers to elicit, process and share understandings and experiences that are not ready, readily or fully accessed through more traditional fieldwork approaches. That's Greenwood 2012. Research approaches used in the arts and humanities aim to provide a deeper and more nuanced understanding of human experience, meaning and values. As such, they're able to provide what I would describe as thick narratives of impact and highlight lived experience and meaning and attend to contextual factors. Such a constructivist approach towards building up accounts and understanding of beneficiaries' experiences has distinct value for capturing impact. Furthermore, such approaches to impact evaluation typically infer causation by jointly building a case with beneficiaries that triangulates multiple sources of evidence, including data collected by those beneficiaries, to create a credible argument for a significant contribution of the research to impact. In resisting binary thinking, arts-based approaches have the capacity to capture meaning, implicit and ephemeral phenomena, and benefits that are difficult to express and might therefore pass unrecorded. Methods based on the arts can be particularly useful for researching implicit and tacit impacts that are difficult or impossible to conceptualise or articulate. It is well known that some knowledge cannot be conveyed through language, such as emotional, aesthetic and symbolic aspects of experience.
In these cases, arts-based math research methods can add value where more traditional tools, such as interviews or questionnaires, fail to articulate and capture impacts. This is particularly important when working with often vulnerable populations with limited verbal or written competence. Arts-based methods enable, I quote now Chamberlain et al. 2008, uh, enable better access to the emotional, effective and embodied realms of life, cultivate empathy and challenge and provoke audiences to engage with complex and difficult social issues. Visual arts methods commonly used in impact evaluation include photo elicitation, also known as photo voice and photo survey. Uh, drawing, for example, rich pictures from soft systems methodology. Paintings, uh, see Gillies et al. 2015. And collages, see Gerstenblatt uh, 2013. Music, theatre and dance may be used in participatory monitoring and evaluation. For example, in ethnotheater, evaluation data are translated into a play script, which is performed, offering potential for further debate and insight. Fiction writing may be used as a method of inquiry and analysis. For example, Sundin et al. 2018 used storytelling to increase stakeholder engagement in environmental evidence synthesis. More about that in the next section. And Kenter et al. 2014 used storytelling to elicit implicit knowledge about the values people held for the natural environment in research that sought to understand the social impacts of policy. The participatory nature of many qualitative and arts-based evaluation approaches means that people are engaged with research through an action-reflection cycle, enabling new understandings of the phenomena under study to come to light, often challenging perceptions and providing fresh perspectives. These approaches emphasise plural perspectives from a multiplicity of voices and promote, I quote, a form of understanding that is derived or evoked through empathic experience. That's van der, Va van der Vaart uh, et al. 2018, citing Eisner 2008. In addition to understanding impact at new levels, arts-based methods in themselves provide a medium for communicating the findings of an evaluation in a powerful way and are often used to support dissemination, making project reporting more engaging, accessible and relevant to those beyond professional practice and academia. Qualitative participatory evaluation methods include transect walks, i.e. walking interviews and matrix ranking. Van der Vaartetel used creative workshops about place, identity and community resilience to create an exhibition, gaining multifaceted knowledge of factors leading to impact. Others have used process tracing, a qualitative causal inference method where participants score and rank the importance of different possible causal factors for a given impact. Role-playing games are another type of participatory approach which is often combined with arts-based arts work and can be used to test, for example, policy impacts arising from research. For example, Garcia et al. 2015 used role-playing games to engage ecosystem users and academics in the co-design of a board game that represented and simulated socio-ecosystem socio functioning in order to address issues regarding decision processes between stakeholders and predict policy impacts on ecosystem management. 
Qualitative participatory methods that can be borrowed from anthropology and ethnography include sensory ethnography, exploring subjective experiences through interconnected senses, and spirit of place, capturing the intrinsic values of an environment and why and how people connect to it emotionally. Participatory impact pathway analysis enables researchers and stakeholders to jointly describe a project's theories of action, develop logic models, create network, ma network maps, and use them for planning and evaluation. Many of the methods used in the wider action research tradition seek to challenge and sometimes overturn the typical power dynamics that exist between the evaluator and those being evaluated, empowering supposed beneficiaries to set the questions for the evaluation and interpret the outcomes, rather than acting as passive research subjects to an external evaluator. As a research approach for evaluating impact, qualitative and arts-based approaches offer particular value in creating new knowledge, knowledge spaces, eliciting new perspectives on a theme or topic, overcoming or challenging power imbalances, facilitating genuine knowledge exchange, and eliciting evidence on sensitive or hard to verbalize topics. In doing so, this type of evaluation can generate unexpected data layers and enhance the communication of both research and impact. Finally then, let's look at this fifth type of impact evaluation, evidence synthesis. Now, uh, you may be asking yourself, uh, how on earth can you use this to uh, evaluate research impact? And uh, I will confess our, our, our reviewers were asking the same question, and so I've uh, attempted to justify this a bit more effectively. Uh, I'll let you decide what you think. Uh, a bit of a flavour of what we're talking about here, meta-analysis, narrative synthesis, uh, and various forms of systematic reviews. Um, relevant for all types of impact. Um, a couple of examples, uh, you may get evidence of the time, the money or lives saved as a result of new evidence-based practices, or an example of an actual product, service or policy based on evidence synthesis with evidence of benefits for those using the product or service or affected by the policy. While each of the preceding methods can be used as part of a project cycle, evidence synthesis typically takes place at the programme level and draws on bodies of work emerging from multiple projects. Evidence synthesis is especially useful where there is apparently contradictory evidence across a range of studies about the relationship between an intervention arising from research, for example, a new process or product, and an impact, for example, studies reporting positive, negative, or no association with outcomes that are valued as impacts. Evidence synthesis is a process of carrying out a review of existing data, literature and other forms of evidence with predefined methodological approaches to provide a transparent, rigorous and objective assessment of whether something arising from research is a necessary cause of impactful outcomes. Its use is now widespread across many sectors of society in which research can be used to influence and inform decision making. Efforts to improve the connections between the policy decisions and research evidence have resulted in a number of approaches to evidence synthesis, from meta-analysis to different forms of narrative-based synthesis. Many of these can be grouped broadly under the umbrella term of systematic reviews. The utility of systematic reviews is well established across a, a broad range of research disciplines, including the medical and public health sectors, 
development and humanitarian interventions, and conservation and environmental management. Systematic reviews locate information from the peer-reviewed and grey literature, critically appraise methodologies and synthesise findings to deliver answers to research, policy and practice questions. Indeed, by engaging stakeholders in the co-development of a search protocol, as is recommended practice, the probability that the review outcomes are relevant enough to generate impact is increased. Stakeholder confidence in systematic reviews is enhanced by the fact that they follow a transparent and repeatable protocol and give a, an extensive account of the available evidence. This approach minimises the incorporation of bias into the review. For example, a conventional review may reflect the author's own opinions and can be based on a selection of opinion that is in itself potentially biased. The methods for reviewing the literature and for the subsequent synthesis of evidence under the broad family of systematic reviews can be very varied. One of the critiques of a full systematic review is that it is time and labour intensive, as it requires considerable consultation with likely end users and searching of unpublished and grey literature, often by hand and often at geographically disparate locations. Further criticisms include that the traditional format of a systematic review and the meta-analysis that's subsequently carried out on the data uh, is that it is, I quote, mechanistic, driven more by concerns about reliability and replicability than about adding to understanding of phenomena of interest. That's Slavin, 1995. As uh, a response to those criticisms, alternative ways of synthesising evidence have emerged in which some of the most rigid principles of systematic reviews and meta-analysis are relaxed. These alternative ways include rapid evidence synthesis or rapid evidence assessments, scoping reviews, systematic maps, semi or flexible systematic reviews, and best evidence synthesis, and simply following more systematic and, repli and, and repeatable search strategies. More informal rapid reviews and realist-based synthesis have also emerged. These often, includes, uh, these often use broad inclusion criteria for evidence qualitative and quantitative, to facilitate comparison of impact evaluation methods, develop transferable theory, and attempt to provide policymakers with knowledge in response to time-sensitive and emerging issues. However, the lack of transparency and re repeatability for some of these methods might render these informal processes less useful for impact evaluation. Systematic review approaches have also been developed which utilise qualitative evidence and are centred predominantly on exploring and progressing theoretical frameworks, investigating system complexity, and placing research within its social context via meta-narratives. A configurative systematic review is one example. Such reviews set out to interpret and understand a concept by configuring information and generating new knowledge or perspectives, and are largely concerned with identifying patterns. The methods used for data analysis as part of the review process include configurative and aggregative approaches, or a combination of the two. Configurative methods aim to formulate ways of understanding phenomena and their meaning or value, usually through the review of qualitative data. Aggregative methods combine the generally quantitative findings of similar studies to judge the strength of a conclusion and normally follow a more traditional statistical or meta-analytical approach. 
whereas classic quantitative aggregative reviews are likely to be meta-analyzing similar forms of data. Configurative reviews are concerned with identifying patterns provided by heterogeneity. As such, they are ideal for synthesizing evidence from different disciplines or methodologies. The choice between them, or how they are combined, usually depends on data quality and availability, which is often driven by the heterogeneity and methods used by researchers to address the questions underpinning the impact that needs to be evaluated. The different variables measured, methods used, and ways of reporting outcomes is a significant constraint preventing evidence synthesis in systematic reviews. In response to this challenge, a number of attempts have been made to develop standards of evidence in specific domains. For example, the Alliance for Useful Evidence reviewed 18 standards of evidence currently used in UK social policy and called for the creation of a single set of standards that could enable more effective comparison between policy appraisals. This is similar to approaches to evidence in the medical research community. For example, the use of common outcome measures for chronic pain, cl chronic pain cl clinical trials, um, that enable findings to be synthesized across studies in meta-analyses to inform evidence-based medicine policy and practice? And could, in theory, be applied to the generation of evidence for research impact? Regardless of the specific approach taken to the review or to the analysis of the resultant data, one of the great strengths of following systematic approaches is that reviews are updatable as new evidence becomes available. Thus, systematic approaches allow tracking through time of the nature and pathways through which evidence travels through the literature, resulting in impact on the wider society. I'm going to move to the final section of the paper now. Um, it's a brief section, but this is now where we introduce our methodological framework. I'm going to refer to a diagram, and uh, I'm going to suggest at this point, if you've not done so already, have a look at the show notes. I will put a link to a presentation on, um, uh, on research impact evaluation, where you will be able to see the figure. So, in this, penultimate, uh, in this penultimate section, we explain how the different types of impact evaluation identified in the previous section fit into a broader methodological framework. Figure two shows how research leads to possible impacts via an impact plan and pathways to impact. In the case of serendipitous impacts, the impact plan is missing, but pathways can still typically be traced. However, these possible impact claims may be contested in terms of their significance or reach, or on the basis of the evidence that significant or far-reaching impacts can be attributed to the research. Therefore, for impacts to be considered demonstrable, an impact evaluation needs to be designed, denoted in this case by a grey box in figure two. So we've got the research, one box, uh, leading now in the flowchart way to the next box, which is we've got uh, a, a pathway to impact. Uh, and then, in theory, we, uh, we do our, our pathway underpinned by research and we get what we think are demonstrable impacts, but we can't prove it. Uh, and so the next step in our, uh, our schematic is we design uh, an impact evaluation. <coughs> trying to paint this for you if you've, uh, if you've not downloaded the image. Um, so to continue reading. Ideally, evaluations can draw on monitoring that has been designed to track progress towards planned impacts. However, an evaluation can proceed in the absence of monitoring. 
drawing on alternative sources of evidence. So part of this grey box is a, a part of a schematic here which is monitoring data feeding into the evaluation, uh, if you've got that. Monitoring can provide formative feedback that can help adapt and refine pathways. So we've got a feedback loop now going from the monitoring all the way back to that pathway to impact right at the beginning. Uh, yeah, let's learn from our mistakes, let's do things better. And of course that then increases the likelihood of actually delivering impact. Various types of monitoring can be used as part of the evaluation process depending on the nature and purpose of the impact evaluation. In addition to monitoring data, such as intervention outcome data, the evaluation may produce other evidence, such as health economics evidence or of cost savings resulting from the intervention, which taken together demonstrate that significant and far-reaching impacts were derived from the research. So what I'm trying to get across here is that as part of the impact evaluation, to start with, we've got these two sources of evidence. We've got evidence which is arising from your ongoing monitoring, some of which was planned ahead of time using a logic model or a theory of change. We're looking for specific indicators, milestones, etc. And we've got data which is now uh, bespoke, uh, generated from the evaluation itself. We've commissioned some health economics work, for example. So let's now move on uh, following the schematic line um, uh, in terms of the, uh, the actual impact evaluation and uh, have a think about how I'm going to choose between different types of impact evaluation now. So um, as we've heard, as I've gone through table one um, and in the first segment of this episode, we've got these five different types of evaluation design. And your task now is to choose which of these is most relevant. And figure two suggests that there are two key factors likely to inform the choice between these five different evaluation designs. First, the choice of evaluation design must be suited to the context in which it is to be used. So your context can include things like the resources available. Some types of evaluation design, such as experimental approaches, can be very time-consuming and resource-intensive. The scope of the, of the evaluation, for example, in spatial or temporal scale, or the range of linked systems to be considered. The types of impacts being evaluated, as I described going through table one, some types of evaluation design are more suited to evaluating certain types of impact. And finally, uh, the ontology and epistemology of the team selecting the evaluation design. Let's take all of this into account. And if you want to uh, remember, remember what that was all about, um, some long words there go back to last week's uh, part one of this episode. So based on the theoretical constructs that emerge from the analysis of the literature, which I described to you in the first part, uh, the, the choice of evaluation design is also going to have to reflect the aims of the evaluation. So uh, we've got uh, two parts in our schematic now, uh, two key things that will influence your choice of evaluation design. First, a bunch of contextual stuff, which I've just described. Secondly, uh, the aims of your evaluation. What are you trying to, tr trying to actually achieve from this? And based on answering that question, you're gonna be able to much more effectively decide which of the five different types is right for you. Where was I? Um, I've lost my place. <laughs> um, yes, 
So let's, uh, I'll, I'll start again there, actually, so you, you get the beginning of the sentence. So based on the theoretical constructs that emerged from our analysis uh, last episode, the choice of evaluation design also needs to reflect the aims of your evaluation. For example, the extent to which the evaluation aims to provide summative versus formative feedback, or provide evidence of necessary versus sufficient causal links between research and impact. Evaluations are typically designed to establish relationships between research and impact along causal chains, which often include the evaluation of knowledge exchange activities or pathways to impact. It can be possible to attribute impact to research through long causal chains. However, the strength of evidence for research impact is only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. As a result, attribution in long causal chains is often partial, indicating that research may have been sufficient or uh, uh, may have been sufficient or may have only made a minor contestable contribution to impact, given the range of confounding factors at play at the end of a long causal chain. So essentially what you've got now is uh, a decision tree that uh, takes me from my research through my, uh, my, my impact plan and pathway to impact uh, to an evaluation where I have a think about what my aims are, what my context is, and based on that, I now choose from one of five types of evaluation design. And then within each of those types, I'm now looking uh, at the individual methods that I might have at my disposal in terms of my expertise, my resources, etc. And, uh, and I now uh, make my evaluation design. At all time, being aware that uh, I'm going to be pulling in uh, material from uh, my monitoring and, where possible, feeding that back into my practice to do better impact. At the end of the day, uh, the results of uh, the monitoring and the evaluation are what give me now evidence of demonstrable impact. So I'm going to conclude now, final section. With sufficient time and resources, there are now evaluation methods that can be used to monitor and assess almost any impact arising from research. Knowing what delivers impact and what does not can help researchers and research evaluators anticipate challenges and avoid using methods that are unlikely to work or that might lead to unintended negative consequences. When things don't go according to plan, evaluation findings can give researchers ideas about how to get things back on track or do things better next time. Whether for funders, the media or the wider public, the process of evaluating impact often enables researchers to communicate the value of research to wider audiences. In this paper, we provided new definitions of research impact and impact evaluation informed by our analysis of the literature, including a new way to conceive of reach as scaling up and or out that can be applied in any disciplinary context. Based on these definitions, we've sought to simplify the bewildering range of methods available into five types of evaluation design that can be used to guide the selection of relevant evaluation methods. Like any typology, there are multiple alternative ways we could have divided and named the types of evaluation we came across in the review. 
this typology then forms the basis for a wider methodological framework to guide anyone who wants to select a relevant evaluation design and methods to causally link impacts to research and assess their significance and reach. There are almost as many evaluation methods as there are impacts, and as researchers seek to demonstrate new impacts, methods will continue to evolve. Although it's impossible to capture all possible methods for evaluating impact, we hope that the examples provided under each type of, evalu of evaluation design will stimulate additional reading and experimentation. Using the approach to research impact evaluation described in this paper, it should be possible for researchers, funders and other stakeholders working across multiple disciplines to design more effective evaluations to evidence the impact of research. So we're at the end of the paper. Um, well done if you've got this far. This is, uh, I think, uh, the longest episode uh, to date of my, uh, of my podcast. Uh, and of course, uh, it's a paper, it's a bit technical, it's a bit dry. I've tried to uh, open this up as far as I can in the way that I've read it. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't write as accessibly as I would like. Uh, always room for, for improvement. But I think the key take-home that I want you to get at this point, though, is to ask yourself some searching questions. Uh, how am I currently evaluating impact? Can I come up with an evalua evaluation plan now, even although I've not finished generating the impact, even though I've maybe even not even started on that process, because actually now, as a result, I'm opening up a whole new range of methods that I could otherwise perhaps not be able to use because I would need a before and after, a baseline or whatever else. So uh, think early and you can instantly see just the, the range of new methods that become available to you. Uh, now, as I said in the conclusion, there are multiple ways you can cut this pie. Um, and we've come up with uh, our five categories. Uh, helped, I will confess, by our reviewers who helped us to combine a few and uh, reduce some of the overlap between what we originally proposed. Um, and, and I hope that these are sufficiently useful, that these different types will stand the test of time. I, I, th I hope, however, that the methods we've described do not stand the test of time because we are constantly innovating in this space and moreover uh, we are constantly realizing that the methods that we have used throughout our career in our own individual disciplines are in fact relevant for impact evaluation and I hope that uh, I started making a few connections in your mind about methods you're familiar with that you use day in day out in your research that you could in fact now deploy for impact evaluation. I think for me, the biggest eye-opener as part of the process of this was working with Rachel on the arts and humanities side of this and just seeing not only the breadth of methods available, but the unique forms of data that would otherwise not be accessible using pretty much any other method. So, so think deeply, experiment, uh, try out things that, uh, that might not typically fit into the box of impact evaluation. And my hope uh, with this paper is that we open that box right up to say, you know what, this is as big as your imagination. If that is a method that can demonstrate cause and effect between research and impact, you can use this for evaluation. And when you start using methods from your own discipline, very often then you get win-wins back to your research because, hey, there's a paper in this, or there's a section of my next paper, or a postscript to my monograph, or whatever it is, that says, actually, this is how it works in practice. And you've got the rigor behind that 
to put into your research portfolio, uh, as well as providing evidence that will stand up to scrutiny. So go out, enjoy, put this into practice. And, uh, and thank you once again for getting to the end of this mammoth, uh, mammoth episode.